we live in a very turbulent world. If you pick up a history book and start reading, it doesn't take long to see that nothing is truly ever stable. Over the course of history, great empires have risen to power, yet as we know, those same renowned nations have also fallen from power. It took Rome nearly 800 years to reach its full prominence, yet 400 years later, the Roman Empire fell and a new authority took its place. Though considered one of the greatest military powers in all of history, Rome was not able to establish eternal strength and dominance. Not only is the establishment of powers in our world always in unrest, but so too our natural world experiences instability. Natural catastrophes and disasters greatly impact the safety and well-being of human life. Even the ground upon which we stand does not always provide a sure and a steadfast foundation. Perhaps we remember the devastating tsunami that took place in Japan back in 2011. One article that I had read recalled the safety precautions that were taken to withstand such an earthquake and tidal wave of that magnitude. In a town called Taro, a 32-foot seawall had been built to resist large and tumultuous waves from destroying the town. However, this 32-foot wall was no match for the 52-foot wave that struck and devastated the town and the residents of Taro back in 2011. The lesson learned from that instance was to build higher, and as a result, the Japanese government set aside $12 billion to reinforce safety precautions against tsunamis. Taro now has a 48-foot seawall, 16 feet higher than the previous barriers that surrounded this, the city. However, though these new precautions will help, the risk of devastation from natural catastrophes still remains and will always pose a threat. But our turbulent world does not, is not just perceived in political powers and the natural order, but it is also seen in our own personal lives. We often put our trust in our personal riches and wealth, but that too does not guarantee well-being and a solid foundation in our lives. As we know, Christ says on the Sermon on the Mount, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. We can spend a lifetime saving up for retirement and a comfortable life. But in an instant, in a moment, that wealth can be taken away. Money cannot ultimately save us from troubles. The point of these three observations, nothing is truly ever stable. Nothing is ever truly free from unrest, save one thing, and that one thing is God, and God's will, God's help, God's presence will always remain. Though the nations are in constant upheaval, rising to power and falling from power, though the natural order rages and leaves the world in constant instability, though earthly riches are stolen and cannot ultimately save, there is one stability that can be leaned upon. There is one constant in which we can take shelter, and that, of course, is our God. That is the theme of Psalm 46, which is the psalm surrounding our memorable verse this evening. The truth that God is a steadfast presence and help in times of turbulence and trouble. God is a steadfast presence and help in times of turbulence and trouble. But tonight we, we look at a specific verse within this psalm. And what is unique about this particular verse is its verbal form. This verse is an exhortation. It's a command our verse this evening is the culminating call to action 
in light of God's presence and help. So that leads us to our theme this evening. Tonight, we seek to answer the question, what should our response be to God's divine protection? What should our response be to God's divine protection? Our key verse, our memorable verse, is Psalm 46.10, which says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, in order to best understand this verse and clearly see the essence of what is being exhorted or commanded, I think it is important to take a brief moment to look at Psalm 46 as a complete whole. So what better way to begin than to read the entirety of this notable psalm? So let's begin at verse 1 of Psalm chapter 46. It says, To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come behold the works of God, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. As was mentioned earlier, the big idea of Psalm 46 is that God is a steadfast presence and help in times of turbulence and trouble. This theme structurally supports the entire psalm. The theme quite literally acts like a foundation that holds up the complete work. And how is that seen? Well, because the theme is symmetrically repeated at the beginning, the middle, and the end. If you take a look with me at verses 1, 7, and 11, this is what it says. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then verse 7 is repeated again. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Verses 1, 7, and 11 bolster Psalm 46. These verses carry the message of Psalm 46 evenly throughout the song. They structurally uphold the entirety of the psalm. A couple years ago, Lebanon constructed two bridges, one on 9th Street and one on 10th Street. These bridges were constructed to bypass the train tracks, and they now sit in the middle of our city. Perhaps we are all familiar with them. If you are ever driving next to the bridges on 8th Street or 12th Street, take a look at how those bridges are constructed. And I have a picture here of one of those bridges, and as you can see, like many bridges, the construction supports the road overhead with three structural, structural points that take the weight of the vehicles above. And these three structural points are at the beginning of the bridge, the middle of the bridge, and at the end of the bridge. 
I'm not a construction expert, but I think it is safe to say that this particular bridge needs those three focal points in order to sustain the weight. So too, this is how Psalm 46 is constructed. In the beginning, the middle, and the end, we get this repetitive statement of how God is a help and a steadfast foundation on which his people can take solace. The psalmists, the, the sons of Korah, use this repetitive language to clearly state their reason for writing this praise song. And for the sake of the message this evening, I think it is important to take a high-level view of what the psalmists are communicating in this song of praise. These three verses carry the psalm along, so I believe it is important to look at these three verses as a whole, which I trust will aid us in considering our memorable verse this evening, which is verse 10. So verses 1, 7, and 11, what can be seen in these thematic verses? And there are just two points I would like to draw. And the first point is this, God is favorable upon his people. God is favorable upon his people. I'm going to read these again, but take note to the highlighted words that are above on the screen. Psalm 46, 1, 7, and 11, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then that is repeated again in verse 11. God looks favorably upon his people. God's chosen people have no need to fear the presence of the great king of the world. We have very vivid imagery throughout the psalm, all right, throughout Psalm 46. And within that imagery, we have pictures of the power of God displayed in executing judgment on the peoples of the earth. Quickly just listen to the word pictures that are painted here. All right, or you can read them above as well. Starting at the end of verse 6, it says, He, that is God, utters his voice. The earth melts. He, God, once again has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Those are very graphic images. All right, very graphic pictures. A God with that power is frightening. It is fearful to be in the presence of such a God who can defeat any human efforts in battle and who, as verse 6 says, makes the earth melt. Now, the word melt here is very interesting. It means to become soft or liquid. It, it literally means to lose firmness. It is communicating that as God speaks to his opposition, they lose courage. They literally lose firmness. God, who has that sort of power and authority, is frightening. The people of Israel experience a sense of that fright on Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses gives a recounting to Israel of their years of wandering in the desert. Israel is about to enter the promised land, and Moses takes the time to, to call to remembrance Israel's reaction to the presence of God on Mount Sinai. I would like to read that to us now, starting at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22. It says, These are the words of the Lord. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And that is Moses speaking. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of the tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. 
Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. The very presence and voice of God brings fear. His power, His authority makes one lose firmness. It makes them sink. It makes their heart melt. Psalm 29 addresses in detail the power of God's voice. And the scriptures speak of a a universal fear of God. uh, To acknowledge who He is and tremble at what we are compared to Him. To fear the Lord our Creator is a universal response to His majesty. It's appropriate. It's, It's commanded in scripture. But to fear God because you stand in his judgment, in his opposition, brings a whole different reaction. To know that God is standing against you and you need to repay for the wrong that you have done to him is a different sort of fright. Right? It's a different trembling that God's people do not need to experience. God's children need not fear the presence of God like those who oppose God. And why is that? Because God is for us. God's presence with us is not for judgment, but for protection. God looks favorably upon his people. That is the whole idea behind the Beatitudes. God's people are blessed because they stand in favor with God. And as a result, they inherit these characteristics that reap God-given rewards. God is ever with his people. God looks favorably upon his children. Which leads us to the second point to see in these three thematic verses, and that is that God is ever protecting his people with his presence. God is ever protecting his people with his presence. Back to these three verses. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The pictures of a refuge and fortress are very picturesque, right? The word fortress is the image of a a place of defense, a stronghold. It was a a place of refuge, a place where the Israelites could run, could turn and run for security. When David was on the run from Saul in uh, 1 Samuel, we get multiple accounts of David taking shelter and hiding himself from Saul in strongholds. A fortress, a stronghold, provides military protection. In the same way, our God is our protection our might and power in times of hardship. But the imagery does not stop there, for in verse 1 we get this phrase, a very present help. A very present help. The word for present here literally carries the picture of being found out, to discover. So when the psalmist says that God is a present help, they are saying that God has been found to be a constant aid. God has been proven to be a constant aid. Right? Often the quality and ability of athletes are measured by numbers and statistics. And those athletes who achieve the highest marks, those who consistently perform at the best, who lead the stat sheet, they often prove themselves as one of the greatest. Michael Phelps has proven himself to be the greatest swimmer of all time. And how has he done it? Well, statistically, he has most consistently achieved the highest honors. For example, in the Olympics, he has 28 medals. The second closest male swimmer has 12. All right, Michael Phelps has consistently been the best. 
He has proven himself over and over, and for that he is considered to be the greatest. That is the picture here. Through God's work in the past, he has proven to be a faithful protection to his people. God has been found to be the only true, constant, and stable help in times of difficulty and hardship. His presence is constant, and it will never fail. As a result, his people have no need to fear. For verse 2 tells us that because of God's presence and protection, we need not be afraid. Therefore, we will not fear. Even if, as verse 6 says, the balance of national powers shakes and totters, there is no need to be afraid. Right? Even if, metaphorically, the natural order falls apart, as verse 2 and 3 state, God's people do not need to be afraid. They do not need to tremble. And why is that? Because we have God as our stronghold. Because God has proven himself over and over again as a firm foundation of protection against hardship. And with this truth in view, with this theme in mind, we come to our memorable verse. verse four, or Psalm 46 is bolstered with the three thematic verses, but resting in between two of these verses, verses 7 and 11, we have a unique verse that stands apart in form and pace of the rest of the psalm. And it is with this verse that we pause and take the remaining time that we have this evening to consider, to look at, to to analyze what this verse says. So take a look with me at Psalm 46, verse 10. It says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This verse is quite unique in form. All right? Unlike the other ten verses in this psalm, verse 10 very distinctly interrupts the flow of the psalm. And how does it do that? Well, in two ways. The first is the point of view of this verse. This is the only verse in all of Psalm 46 that is in the first person. All right? It says, "Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth." But more specifically, take note of who it is that is speaking in the first person. It is God. I am God. If you remember, we took a brief look at verse 6, and I would like to direct our attention back to it now. And this is what verse 6 says. It says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The earth, the nations, they shudder and dissolve at the sound of God's voice. Here in verse 10, we get the actual voice of God speaking, literally in the first person, but the tone is quite different. Instead of God judging the nations of the world, instead of God speaking destruction to his enemies, instead of God defeating armies with his mere voice, we have God simply telling his people to be still. To be still. What a contrast. The voice of God displayed in verse 10 is dissimilar to the voice of God displayed here in verse 6. And because of that dramatic shift, we should see an abruption to the flow of the entire song. Which leads us to our next point of distinction. Verse 10 stands in contrast to the other verses within Psalm 46 because it is a command. Look with me again at verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. This verse is a call to action. It is a command. God is directing his people to carry out an activity. And we will look 
and we will take a look at what be still and know means in a minute, but for the time being, I want us to see the distinctiveness of this verse as a call to action. Now, this is not the only command or call to action seen in this psalm. In verse 8, we have the commands to come and see the works of God, but I believe the exhortation in verse 8, which says, come, behold, the works of the Lord, I believe it fuels the command of verse 10, which is be still and know. In other words, verse 10 which we see here, is the ultimate action in light of the charge mentioned in verse 8. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it in a minute. But for now, I want us to ultimately see that when we step back and understand the unique form of this verse, the idea that it is both in the first person and the idea that it is a command or an exhortation, we get an abruption that should grab our attention. But what is the message of this verse? Yes, it stops us to look and consider why this is different. Yes, it is unique in form. But what is the meaning of this abruption? Why is it placed here? What should we see when we consider and analyze the message of the verse? Well, let's begin with the beginning phrase. Be still. Be still. God desires for his people to stop trying to work out their own solutions to their hardships. You know, I think the the NAS translates this verb well when it says this. Look at the, the NAS translation. It says, cease striving and know that I am God. Cease striving. The picture here goes further than being still. It's, it's more than simply sitting and observing. It's more than even just relying on God and leaving everything in his hands. Rather, the picture here is to grow slack. The picture here is to release. It's, it's to let go. To withdraw your hand from one thing in favor of grasping something else. God is saying, stop. Withdraw from what you're doing. Put an end to your own solutions. Let go of your own methods for deliverance and take refuge in me. I am the only stable ground on which you can rely. So withdraw yourself from your self-assured attempts at salvation. Trust in me with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. You know, it's, it's a truth we learn over and over in Scripture to put off your own methods of deliverance and to trust in God fully, but it is so easy to place ourselves to place trust in ourselves and in our own methods. Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was a godly king, a king that led Israel in the ways of God. He was a righteous king, get this, who trusted God more than any other king in the land of Judah. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 5. It says, He, that's referring to Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, here it is, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. King Hezekiah's trust in his God was unique. It stood out as the ultimate best. Hezekiah grasped God. His trust and faith exceeded that of all the kings of Judah who came before and all who came after. Yet even the great king Hezekiah wavered in his, in his trust in God. Let me look with me at 2 Kings 18, verses 7 through 8. It says, And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to a fortified city. God was with Hezekiah in conquering lands and bringing freedom from the hand of the Assyrians. But listen as 2 Kings 18 continues, and we pick up at verse 13. 
In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish and said, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave them gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. God had given deliverance to Hezekiah from the hand of the Assyrians. We saw that in verse 7. But when the Assyrians come marching back, what does Hezekiah do? He rips apart the house of the Lord to pay tribute. Hezekiah takes matters into his own hands and works out a salvation that he devised. There's a commentary that I read, Keelan Delitz. It's a biblical commentary on the Old Testament, and this is what they have to say about this situation. There was nothing really wrong in the shaking off of this yoke by the refusal to pay any further tribute, but Hezekiah certainly did wrong when, after taking the first step, he was alarmed at the disastrous consequences and sought to purchase once more the peace which he himself had broken by a fresh submission and renewal of the payment of tribute. The, this false step on the part of the pious, pious king, which arose from a temporary weakness of faith, was nevertheless turned into a blessing through the pride of Sennacherib and the covenant faithfulness of the Lord towards him and his kingdom. Hezekiah, a king of great faithfulness who trusted in his God, wavered. Instead of putting off his own attempts at salvation, Hezekiah sought salvation in what money could buy and what riches could provide. Now in chapter 19, Hezekiah does redeem himself in praying to God for deliverance from the Assyrians, and the Lord is gracious to Hezekiah, and deliverance is eventually experienced. But we have this instance, this part in Hezekiah's life when he was not still when he did not cease from working out his own means of deliverance. All too easy is it for us to lean into our own method of deliverance. It is our natural instinct to put our trust in what we can see and what has worked for others or even ourselves in the past. But God commands us to stop, to be still, and to look to God. So that is the first part of the exhortation in Psalm 46.10, to be still, to throw off what is right in your own eyes, withdraw yourself from your self-assured attempts of salvation, and know that God is the only stable ground on which you can rely. But the verse does not stop there. It continues with another command. This command provides an alternative. Instead of seeking out one's own salvation or deliverance, here is what is to be done. Look with me at the next phrase. It says, be still and know that I am God. And know that I am God. To know God. This is more than a, a factual knowledge. This is more than simply understanding that Yahweh is God. Rather, the picture here is to be aware. To come to know who God is and what God has done. And how are we to come, come and discover who God is? Well, look with me at verses 8 and 9. The verses that proceed Verse 10, it says, Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. 
He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. How are we to know who God is? Go and see. Go and observe the power of God. Contemplate all the examples in which God has proven himself. We looked at Hezekiah and how his faith wavered in a time of hardship. We saw how he sought salvation by his own hand and did not stop to rely on God. But I would like to draw our attention to another godly king, King Asa. King Asa was a righteous king. 2 Chronicles 14, verses 1 through 2 shows us. Follow along as I read. It says, Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his place. In his days the land had rest for ten years, and Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. King Asa, however, failed to trust in God's deliverance from his enemies in the same way that Hezekiah failed to trust in God's deliverance. Look with me at 2 Chronicles 16, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the 37th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, and he, that he might permit, permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There is a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel, Mahem, and all the store cities of Naphtali. This is a very similar story to Hezekiah. An enemy of Judah rises up to attack, and instead of trusting in God's deliverance, Asa strips the house of God to pay for deliverance by a foreign king. Very similar to Hezekiah. But look with me at the next part of the Asa story. God confronts Asa through Hananiah the seer. 2 Chronicles 16, verses 7 through 8. At that time, Hananiah the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hands. I want to draw our attention here to verse 8, the highlighted verse. God had made his power known to Asa. God asks Asa, Why did you not remember the time that I delivered you from the hands of the Ethiopians and the Libyans? If I was faithful then, if I was a stable foundation on which you could trust when that hardship arose, why didn't you trust me this time? God confronts Asa for failing to see God's power displayed. Asa failed to see and know God's deliverance in the past and apply it to the future. Asa failed to be still and to know who God was. God's people need to recognize and see God's faithful hand of help in their lives. To know God is to know his work. And when we fail to see his work in our lives, we fail to really know who God is. We need to see God's faithful hand of provision and deliverance in our lives. As we close out verse 10, we see that God will be proven as the Almighty lifted up sovereign over this world. Look with me at the final part. 
Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The name of God will be high and lifted up over the world. And we know prophetically in the future, every knee will bow before Christ. But this verse is not just pointing to the future end times of Christ's return, but rather God's name, God himself, is lifted high in honor when his salvific work is administered and enjoyed. When God's people trust in his deliverance, God is raised to prominence. He is proven as powerful among the world. And this exaltation, this lifting of the name of God for his work of deliverance far extends beyond his own people, right? Rather, when God works, the whole world hears the echoes of his mighty power. Consider Egypt. God delivered the world from famine through the hand of Joseph. Pharaoh and Egypt, pagan people, experienced firsthand the salvation of God. And through Joseph's testimony of the God he serves, God's name is exalted in the mouth of Pharaoh, and God's name is glorified. Consider Syria, another pagan nation. God healed the great Syrian commander, Naaman, and through Naaman's healing, God's name was exalted through Naaman's actions when Naaman returned to Syria. Consider Sheba and the nations that came to hear Solomon's wisdom. Solomon clung to God, knowing that he needed God-given wisdom in order to govern God's people. And as a result, nations around the world, including the Queen of Sheba, came to hear the God-given wisdom of Solomon in which he was blessed. God is exalted through Solomon's wisdom. You see, when we leave off our own ways, our own methods of understanding, and cling to God as the only stable ground upon which we can stand, God is lifted up. His name is praised, and he is proven as the stable refuge in which others can take refuge. So application, as, as we close, that leads us to our very first point of application. And the first point is this. Do our lives contribute to the exaltation of God's name? Is our response to God's divine protection one that lifts up God in all the earth? Do we testify to God's protection in our lives. When God delivers us from illness, do we share his work with others? When God saves us from losing our job, do we publicly share with others that God was the ultimate orchestrator? Even when God provides for our daily bread, do we lead our family in thankfulness and prayer for his provision? And when God has delivered us from our sins through the shed blood of his Son, do we share the good news that we have experienced with the world? To exalt God's name in our lives is to testify to his grace. God will be exalted because God is behind all the outworkings and events in the world. May we contribute to the extolling of our God. May his name be praised. May he ever be lifted up for his grace and goodness in our lives. And may we never fail to forget God's goodness displayed to us. King Hezekiah and King Asa both had instances in their lives when they failed to remember God's salvation. I would submit to you that we often fall into this mindset as well. May we be quick to observe and recall the goodness of God. May we be quick to see his hand at work in the outworkings of the world. And then when we remember that, May we publicly lift up our God, for he is the only stable ground in which we can place our trust.
And that leads us to our second and final point of application for this evening. How often do we keep hold of what is in God's jurisdiction? What I mean by that, do we ever stop and let God work? Psalm 46.10 tells us to be still, to stop pursuing a self-devised refuge from trials and hardships. Rather, we need to take refuge in God and God alone. But what does that look like for us? You know, we live in a world where money is king. You know, if you, if you want security, if you want provision, money is where you find that, right? But money cannot be our refuge. Yes, God works through money, but when we face sickness, when we face job loss, when we face provisional needs, where does our mind go? Oftentimes, the first thing is money. I don't have enough money for this care. I don't have enough money to provide. But our refuge is God. Wealth is not a stable foundation. God is the only one who delivers. Let us live a life where we pursue God before and above the pursuit of careers and wealth. God must be our stronghold. We also live in a world where political unrest is ever-present. Politics divide. When a politician campaigns, they seek to build trust. They are trying to gain favor amongst their, their country's people. But we must recognize that no matter who is elected, it is God who sustains and provides for our nation. Our trust cannot be on earthly powers, but it must be on an almighty God who reigns with a rod of iron. And finally, consider our salvation through Christ Jesus. Now, if you're a child of God, you know that we are saved by the grace of God alone through the work of Christ. The only thing we contribute to salvation is our sin. It is only by grace of God, by the grace of God, that we are saved. You know, we, we all know the great hymn by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And Martin Luther, he actually wrote this hymn based off of Psalm 46. And as you listen to the lyrics, it very much echoes the words of the psalmists. We all know how it starts, right? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. But how familiar are we with the message of the second verse? Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, dost gas who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. When we trust, when we rely on our own means of deliverance, our striving is meaningless. We saw that in our memorable verse, to be still, to put off our own efforts. But often do we remember that the same goes with our salvation and righteous living. Right? Only through Christ can we ever be forgiven of sin. I trust, I pray that many of us here know that and have submitted our lives to Christ as our Lord and Savior. But do we stop and let God, through his word, teach us how to live in a way that is favorable unto him? Do we look at the example of Christ? Or do we go through the ropes of life, living moral, good lives, without ever stopping on a regular basis to pick up the word of God? Only through Christ can we come before a holy God, and only through God's word can we live in a way that is favorable before that holy God. So let us be still. 
Let us put off our own means of understanding and trust in God as our refuge from the assailments of this world. Let us rest in the presence and protection of our God and give him the glory, the exaltation that is due his name. Let's close with a word of prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you for your protection, your deliverance in our lives. Pray that we will never forget your deliverance, your protection, but that we will always remember it. And not only always remember it, but when, when trials do arise, I pray that we will take that remembrance and, and be still knowing that it's in your hands. Pray that we will let you work, let you work out the salvation, and that we won't try to work it out by our own means, but trust in you and trust in you alone, for you are the only stable ground that we can place our lives on. Pray for the time this night during the Berry Festival. I pray that you will bless the fellowship. I pray that the, the conversation will be sweet, will be sweet and that your name will be glorified in what is said and, and what is done. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.